The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week, in honor of news about water found on Mars and an upcoming movie release that has all the space nerds buzzing, we're mashing up two Martian-themed interviews and overthinking what it would be like for people trying to live long-term on the Red Planet. I'm joined by Andy Weir. Andy was first hired as a programmer for a national laboratory at age 15 and has been working as a software engineer ever since. He is a lifelong space nerd and a devoted hobbyist of subjects like relativistic physics, orbital mechanics, and the history of manned spaceflight. He is also the author of the novel The Martian, which was originally self-published and through word of mouth from nerds like you and me became a bestseller. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, and people, there will be spoilers. Lots of them. You have been warned. Okay, so for those who haven't read the book but are still listening because they don't care about spoilers, can you give us a quick summary? Sure. The story is about an astronaut named Mark Watney, who is on the third manned mission to Mars. And he gets injured during an emergency evacuation, and his crew believes that he's dead, and they have to leave without him. But it turns out he isn't dead, and now he's stranded on Mars. Uh, His communications equipment is broken, so he has no way to tell anybody that he's still alive, and he needs to try to survive with just the equipment that he has on hand, which was intended for a short-term mission. So uh, based on what I've read, both uh, in your book and a little bit afterwards doing some research, you, sir, did a lot of research for this book. And apparently the science in it is pretty much as accurate as you can make it. Is that true? Well, yeah, I tried my best to make the science as accurate as possible. As you mentioned in your introduction, I'm a nerd. And so um, when I'm reading books or sci-fi, it it would always bother me when I'd run into something that just made me cringe because of how inaccurate it is. And it's kind of funny. Like, I don't mind a warp drive in a story. I just accept that. But when somebody's walking around on the moon without a spacesuit, that drives me crazy. So if you break the rules a lot, that's fine. But if you break the rules a little, it drives me crazy and takes me out of the story. So I wanted to make sure that my story was as accurate to real science as possible. So you call yourself a devoted hobbyist of subjects like relativistic physics, orbital mechanics, and the history of manned spaceflight. And I don't know that most people would think of those things as hobbies. <laughs> well, anything's a hobby if you like doing it and you do it for free. <laughs> I don't know. I just uh, th- these are things that are really interesting to me. In the Martian, for instance, uh, you know they they go from Earth to Mars and back to Earth, and and I I calculated all the orbital trajectories and everything that they'd need to take for their ship, which is a constantly accelerating. Uh, craft. <laughs> and it was really complicated, and I had to write software to do it. But I, I really had fun doing that. I like I like that kind of problem solving. I read a lot of pop science books, including a lot of space and physics books. Um, but you sound like perhaps you might read something a little heavier. Well, mostly what I like to do is just search around online and find uh, find articles about what I'm interested in. Like, for instance, the uh, supposedly reactionless engine you're uh, you're going to be talking about later in your show. I I eagerly read everything about that as soon as I heard about it. That sort of stuff is really interesting to me. Also, yeah, I like reading nonfiction about the space program. Uh, if anybody any, anybody who likes that, I'd highly recommend Packing for Mars by Mary Roach. Yeah, I can all- I can also vouch for that one. I want to talk more about the book. And seriously, for science nerds, uh, this is the best sort of fiction, because no one puts that much math and engineering in a book, but doesn't do the research to make it accurate. And it it really gave me nerd goosebumps. So thank you. (laughs) But I'm curious, because I'm sure that there's something in the book that's not 100% accurate. So what parts of it aren't as accurate as you'd like them to be? 
Well, there's a few places. Um, the biggest one, the biggest inaccuracy is the sandstorm at the beginning. Right at the beginning, there's a sandstorm. It's uh, threatening to destroy their ascent vehicle, so they have to leave. It's what injures Mark. It, that's kind of the main, the main event that starts the plot thing is a sandstorm on mars it's true that mars has 150 kilometer an hour winds but mars's atmosphere is very very thin it's it's less than one percent the density of earth's atmosphere so the inertia of the wind the actual momentum of it hitting you is very very low and it would feel a, a 150 kilometer an hour wind on mars would feel like about a one or two kilometer an hour wind on earth it would be completely harmless but a lot of people don't know that most people think that a sandstorm on mars would be like a sandstorm on earth just really devastating and so i had to make a decision i i, I decided to go ahead and be inaccurate i mean so i knew that i i knew that was bs when i wrote it but <laughs> i stuck with it anyway because i it's a man versus nature story, so I kind of wanted nature to be the initial problem. 99.9% .9 of people don't know <laughs> that the sandstorm wouldn't really work out that way. And so I said, like, well, some people will be disappointed by that, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll buy back their affection with the rest of the book's accuracy. <laughs> and you did very much so. hope so. <laughs> um, how long did it take you to research some of this stuff? Uh, I'm thinking the botany theory around growing potatoes on Mars, because this was one of my favorite bits. The botany of the potatoes was actually not too bad. That was just um, quick research online. Well, not quick. I mean, it took a while. But um, all told, you know, people often ask me how much time I spent researching. And it's, it's hard to answer because I, I would research and write, research and write. It's not like I did all the research first, then all the writing second. But it did take me about three years to write the book. And I'd estimate I spent about half the time researching. So I'd say maybe 18 months of research total. What would you say was the most intensive research you did for this book, the bit that took the longest? Probably the orbital dynamics. So Hermes, which is the ship that takes them back and forth between Earth and Mars, is not a point acceleration craft. In other words, it doesn't just like burn a rocket engine and then coast until it gets to its destination and then burn an engine again to, you know, fall into Mars's orbit. What it does is it's constantly accelerating with an ion engine. And the ion engine um, produces a small, a tiny bit of thrust, but constantly over time. And the benefit is it takes much less reactant mass. You're just throwing argon out the back of the ship. The fuel that you use doesn't need to be anywhere near as heavy as traditional rocket fuel. So that ship is constantly accelerating at two millimeters per second per second, which is a teeny you know, amount of acceleration. But if you do that for months, you get a pretty good head of steam. And calculating that was extremely complicated, <laughs> like figuring out how to do an intercept from Earth to Mars using just a, that tiny acceleration and constantly on. I couldn't figure out how to do the math for it directly, so I, I wrote software to simulate it. And uh, I made actually an app that lets me kind of change the ship's heading and stuff like that here and there and just kind of work out a trajectory that would, that would do it. And that, that was really fun, too, because I'm a computer programmer, so when I'm presented with a problem, I want to write a computer program to solve it, right? You know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> I also heard that uh, in part because you wrote this software to help you understand the orbital dynamics and how the intercept course would look uh, for some of the scenes in the book, that you actually have a specific time frame that this story happens in. Yeah, um, because I, I was doing the orbital intercept, the, the orbital trajectories and calculations, I had to pick a launch window. And so Earth and Mars move around the sun at different rates. So their relative position to each other changes all the time. So I had to pick a launch window. I had to say like, okay, Earth and Mars have to be at these points in their orbit. So when is that? 
And so it was interesting because I knew the exact date of every moment in the book because I knew when their launch window was. I knew how long it took them to get to Mars. And, of course, most of the book is delineated into log entries that tell you exactly what day of the mission they're on. So it's like, oh, log entry, Sol 114 or whatever for the people who haven't read the book yet. A Sol is a Martian day, the amount of time it takes Mars to have a day, which is about a little over 24 hours. It's 24 hours and 40 minutes. So I didn't want to uh, tell people the exact dates because I didn't want them focusing on, ooh, the future or anything. I wanted it to kind of take place now-ish or slight future. And I just didn't want people focusing on exact details of dates. But one of the one of my alert readers was able to back calculate the exact date that everything takes place on based on information in the novel and i thought that was really cool he was, he worked it out from the communication delays between earth and mars and from knowing that thanksgiving was on a specific date that was mentioned and a few other things and uh i thought that was really cool that <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you made uh, one space nerd really really happy <laughs> so you mentioned having to calculate all these intercept trajectories and velocities and uh another spoiler alert for people who have just tuned in but at the end and there is a very complex series of interceptions and things that have to happen. And I was riveted on my seat. Can you talk us through how how that works and how <laughs> plausible that actually is? So at the end, the Hermes is coming back for Mark. And Mark is ascending off of Mars with a different Mars mission's ascent vehicle. The math on that actually wasn't that complicated because for that, I didn't have to actually work out the details of like, okay, here's the ascent, here's this, that, and the other thing. All I had to do was say like, eh, they had a plan that would have worked, but it missed by this much. And everything else is just like, okay. How do they close this gap of several kilometers when they're out in space? You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking with Andy Weir about his best-selling novel, The Martian, about a man trying to survive alone on Mars. And if you're just tuning in and this book is on your to-read list, be warned, there are spoilers. So most of what you've written is possible, but if I were to pin you down, how plausible do you think it is for someone to survive alone on Mars in the setup you described? Pretty low, uh, pretty low chance of success. You could say that Mark got very unlucky to be in this scenario in the first place, but also he got very lucky in a lot of ways throughout the book. I tried to keep them as minimal as possible, but you know, the initial scenario where he gets a spacesuit punctured and then doesn't die immediately is pretty lucky. <laughs> and then there are all sorts of things that could have gone wrong during the course of the story that didn't. You know, certain pieces of equipment that if they'd broken down, he would have died just immediately. And so they, they just didn't go wrong, right? <laughs> right. And so he, he, he got pretty lucky. It's really interesting. You don't shy away from the math in your book. And I know some people who hate math who also love the book. Something about a man's life being dependent on this math and engineering maybe makes people take it more seriously rather than just skip over it. What do you think? Well, that was the biggest challenge for me while writing the book. I needed the reader to understand the basics of the math behind what was going on, but I also didn't want it to read like a Wikipedia article, right? I wanted it to be interesting. So I had to really be careful drawing that balance between saying, okay, here's the information I need them to have. And I did a whole bunch of extra work that I'd love to brag about, but if it's not immediately and critically important, don't, don't put it in there. First off, I wrote the book for nerds, right? Uh, I, I wrote the book and I was posting it to my website. And so my target audience were people like me who I figured would all be really interested in the math. So that was part of it. It ended up working out well, though, because 
the people who are, aren't interested in the math or aren't interested in the science, they just tended to skim over those sections, and it wasn't even that big a deal to them. They'd just go like, oh, okay, you're talking about math. They, they, they didn't put any effort into absorbing it or understanding it. They, they just accepted it as true and moved on. And so I think that worked out really well. People would kind of selectively give as much attention to the math. They'd give it as much attention as they cared to and ignore it if they didn't like it. I talked to a couple of people, both math-inclined and non-math-inclined, who had read the book um, and really enjoyed it. And I found that most people actually read through the math. And I think part of that is, as you're reading through the math process or the engineering process that uh, Watney goes through to try and solve some of his varying and diverse crises, the math actually tells a story. It's riveting to some extent, because you understand how difficult the problems are. You sort of sort or walk through the difficulty levels with Mark as he's trying to figure out the problems. So I think most people probably have read a lot of the math and engineering, and I think it actually made the story better. Yeah, I hope so. That was the goal. Um, Also, uh, one thing that helped a lot was just making a uh, first-person narration with a smart-ass narrator. So there were a lot of jokes in there that that hopefully pulled the reader through. He is a very interesting uh, sort of smart, let's call it smart-ass character. Um, (laughs) And that's definitely, you really cheer for him, especially at the end. You really want him to make it. Yeah, that, 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 that was what I was hoping. I mean, if he was just this stoic astronaut type, the novel would have been very dull. So I, I needed him to be really, really interesting and compelling. <laughs> Going back to, for a second to the math and the engineering that's actually in the book, do you think that you were able to keep that in in part because A, it was self-published, B, you knew your target audience were hardcore science nerds, um, and perhaps if you had a publishing house or an editor that you were working with, that a lot of that would have had to have been cut? Well, not if it was the editor I ended up with. You know, once once Random House said, like, hey, we want to make a print edition, and uh, I, I had an editor, that editor loved the science aspects of it, and he actually had me expand some of them. You know, he'd say, like, oh, this part it wasn't really explained well enough. I didn't really get it. I didn't understand it, well, and I don't think other people would. So can you expand on it and explain it in more detail? So I think – the editor I ended up with, uh, his name is Julian Pavia, and he works at Crown, was very much in favor of the science segments. Do you think publishers or people in charge of picking what movie or TV show or book is coming out next might underestimate people's ability to absorb this kind of technical information? I don't know. And there's a big difference between books and TV and movie, right? Books tend to be much more toward target audiences. Like, science dorks will read The Martian it has some broad appeal, but for the most part, it's people who like science and science fiction. But when you're making something uh, TV or movies, you need it costs so much to do that. If you want to turn a profit, you need to appeal to a much broader base. You need to. It doesn't work if you want to make high budget TV or movie for a niche audience. You just you just won't make your money back. You, you'll go out of business. Books can get away with that, no problem. But TV and movies, they need to be something that everybody will like. You are tuned in to Science for the People, and we're speaking with the author of the novel The Martian, Andy Weir. And if you've just tuned in, you should note there may be plot spoilers ahead. So I've heard you based a lot of your mission design in your book on the Mars Direct project. Uh, For those listeners who've never heard of it, can you give us the cliff notes of this project and why you chose it as a base? So Mars Direct was invented by, um, a, well, a number of people, most notably Robert Zubrin. And it's a, it's a mission plan for how to uh, do a manned Mars mission. The critical part of it is that you send the return ship and all supplies to Mars first before you ever send people. And then the return ship can sit on Mars and use the process 
that actually turns the Martian atmosphere into rocket fuel, which you can do. You take the, the Martian atmosphere and you need hydrogen and then you need a bunch of energy, which you'd get either through solar cells or whatever. And um, you can make uh, high energy rocket fuel out of that. For every kilogram of hydrogen you bring to Mars, you can make 13 kilograms of rocket fuel. So, so this way you don't have to carry all that mass, your, your return fuel, you don't need to carry it all the way to Mars. And that's critical because every kilogram you want to send to Mars takes like tens, maybe even hundreds of kilograms of fuel. And so the main plot, the, the main trick of uh, Zubrin's Mars Direct is that they call it ISRU, in-situ resource utilization. I think everybody agrees that something like that would have to be done um, if if we were going to have a manned Mars mission. However, this was, uh, I, th- I think Mars Direct was invented in the 70s or 80s. So um, they didn't yet know about new technologies that exist in, in the more modern era. And among them is um, ion engines. And I really think ion engines are going to be one of the main factors in you know manned, manned interplanetary flight. So my version is... I said, okay, first off, um, the way you get back and forth is with a big ion engine craft. Second off, um, in Mars Direct, the plan was to have the entire return ship on Mars, and which then would lift off of Mars and then go back to Earth, right? But I'm, I don't buy that because it means you would need to spend – you would need to have the entire ship that they're going to live on the whole way back from Earth be on Mars and spend all the fuel to get back up. So what I did was I said, no, they just have one ship, a big ship. It never lands. And then they use a little ship to get to the to the surface. And then they use the MAV on the surface, which also uses that same reaction to make fuel, just to get back up to their main ship. And then their main ship uses its ion engines to go back to Earth, which I think would be a tremendous uh, cost savings. The character of Mark Watney is really great on multiple levels. We mentioned his uh, his sass, let's call it. Um, <laughs> but I think he just is a great character as a scientist. Um, he doesn't just come up with an idea and plunge sort of recklessly ahead. He does the math, he tests things, he does a series of proofs of concepts um, with increasingly more difficult tests. He's extremely methodical. Yep, his life depends on it. I could get away with a lot with Mark because I knew that he's not just some normal guy. He's not like he was minding his own business and got sucked up and sent to Mars. He's an astronaut, right? I mean, he must have beaten out a bunch of other candidates for that spot. He must be extremely qualified and extremely well-trained. So I never needed to explain why he was so good at the stuff that he's doing, which is just a huge relief as a writer. You don't you don't need to like delve off into some slumdog millionaire thing on the side explaining why he knows these things right you 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 just get to to write it and that was a huge benefit so i could kick back i could spend a month doing research and figuring stuff out and then mark just uh knows all that stuff in advance and quickly works it out in a, you know in an afternoon <laughs> so one of the things you didn't really get into but would be a huge problem to deal with if you were actually stuck on mars alone is the psychological toll um why did you decide against tackling that in this book Right. That was another deliberate decision on my part. And the main reason is I just didn't want it to be that kind of book. It could have very easily, I mean, realistically, if somebody was stranded alone, if if somebody was in that situation, and he was there for a long time, he was there for 500 and some odd days. So that's, that's almost two years, a year and a half at least. It would have a huge psychological toll. That's a, just the solitude alone would be devastating to any human. And then the constant stress and threat of death and just the extremely unforgiving and harsh environment. 
and for a large par- portions of it, no contact with the um, with it, other humans of any kind. It could have been a, a dark, depressing story about a man's struggle against like crippling loneliness and despair. But I didn't want it to be that kind of story. I wanted it to be about problem solving, about cool technical MacGyvery solutions. And so I decided to just kind of work around it by saying, well, Mark is, uh, once again, that same excuse, Mark is made of sterner stuff. He was selected in large part for his ability to deal with long periods of solitude and um, for his optimistic and and, uh, attitude and strong, like, internal character. So that, that, that's my excuse for why that didn't happen. But the real reason is I just didn't want it to be that kind of book. I didn't want it to be deep and introspective. I wanted it to be all about the science. One of the projects I'm watching is the high seas Mars simulation missions taking place in Hawaii, um, which are specifically studying psychological and social effects of putting four or five people in a small enclosed space together for a really long time. Uh, yeah, do you think so they- these kinds of simulations are important for eventual long term successful missions? Oh, absolutely. They're critical. One of the biggest issues facing long-term spaceflight like that is how how do people get along for that long? I mean, right now we have people who are assigned to the International Space Station, and that's a that's a crew of six, uh, three to six people, depending on when. And um, they're up there. They'll be up there for six months at a time, right? So that's fairly claustrophobic, and you're, you're with the same people. And so we we're, we're learning a bit about how much how much how that works out, but. If you were going to do a manned Mars mission, you're going to have, you know, six people or so in close proximity to each other for literally years and with no with no possible escape from each other. Like if they start developing social or interaction problems between them, there's going to be serious, serious problems. There's no way out. So they need to learn all they can about, well, basically cabin fever and find out what what the psychology is behind it, how to stem it off. And um, how to and the most important thing is how to select people in the first place that won't have that problem or will keep it under control. This is Science for the People. I'm here with Andy Weir, author of the best-selling novel The Martian, discussing his book and the science of being stranded on Mars. And of course, this is also your spoiler warning for those of you who have just tuned in. So you don't just stick Mark Watney on Mars. You also pick up the story on Earth, where NASA is working just as hard to get him home as Mark is working to survive. Why did you decide to cover this side of the story as well? Well, it's funny is originally when I was writing it, I didn't plan to do anything other than Mark's point of view. Um, However, it just became more and more clear to me that the stuff going on at NASA would be interesting and leaving it out would would be denying the reader a bunch of i don't know interesting plot and 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 storyline the short answer is i knew it 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 couldn't possibly take that long for nasa to realize that he was still alive and then you know everything that happens from that point on becomes you know like well crap what do we do now (laughs) and so um I don't know. I, I was really happy with the way that it turned out because then it, it has this other aspect to the story of the whole world rooting for him and kind of a Truman Show thing going on where everybody's watching his movements and hoping that he does all right. And I was, re- I was really happy with how that turned out, which is funny because at the time when I was writing that first NASA chapter, I'm like, this might be a mistake. I, 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 I might just be like deviating from a first person narrator that everybody likes to go off to wander off into a whole host of other characters that are only being introduced here in chapter seven. <laughs> What's really interesting about the NASA side of the story, I think, is 
is that there's a part of the reader that wonders when someone will step in and say, it's too much money, we can't do it, shut it down, which makes that side of the story more intense. And even even though there's not a lot of traditional action there. Uh, yeah, and there's just a constant problem of how, how to deal with this. That, that That's another thing people call me out on, is people say, like, would they really spend that much money and put that much effort into saving one man's life? And, you know, I can't answer that, but I can say it, it comes up a couple of times in the book where people are – somebody, I think, asks in a press conference. It's like, well, you've spent hundreds of millions on this. Like, how much is too much? And the answer that they give is, well – we spent hundreds of billions to send people to Mars just to have a 31-day mission. Um, now we're getting, you know, 20 times that much time spent on Mars. Now we're getting we're getting free extra bonus Mars research time uh, for for basically a bargain if you do the math. So that's that's kind of their explanation for why they're doing it. But really, the I mean, the reason is far less cynical. It's just they want to save them. It's an emotional reaction. So there are a couple of real-world plans to get people to Mars, um, some private initiatives, some publicly funded ones. Any thoughts on those? Well, um, I believe the first manned mission to Mars will have to be like a government thing. Uh, I, and, and it would probably be, uh, d- despite how it's portrayed in The Martian, I think realistically, first manned Ma- Mars mission would probably be a large international effort, kind of like the International Space Station. I just don't see any other way for it to work because it, it would cost just so much. And it's the sort of thing that, like countries, it, it would it would cost the you know space budgets of multiple countries combined to be able to make that happen. Um, so that's like number one. I think it would be international. Now, yes, there are um, there are private industry ideas like Mars One, and I know uh, Mars One gets a lot of airtime, but I, I don't take them seriously at all. I uh, I I think they're a good think tank for. Uh, coming up with issues that need to be solved and plans and ideas. But I, I don't think um, I, I, I think there are claims that they will have people on Mars, that they'll be able to actually put people on Mars are, are ridiculous then. And their funding streams are they, they plan to fund it with reality TV. Well, I can tell you, no, no reality TV show makes enough money to fund a Mars mission. Like, if you took all the proceeds of American Idol and put them toward a space mission, I don't think you'd even be able to send a probe. Well, maybe India would. They they did a really cheap probe. It was awesome, like $70 million. <laughs> <laughs> There definitely does seem to be a push, or at least a perception of a push, to put a person on Mars. Do you think that's a good thing? Yeah, I think it. I think it is. I, I think um, manned spaceflight is important for the one simple reason that uh, it is a step toward colonizing other other worlds, and I think that's important to our species. I I I, I feel uneasy having our entire race be on a single planet like we're one good strong asteroid impact away from extinction but if we were in two places even if we were just on the moon as well then then we're safe you know so if you think of us as some sort of planetary mold we need to go (laughs) we need to infect another planet (laughs) (laughs) i like that i will now think of the human race as planetary mold for the rest of my life well, that's what we do. You know, we're just kind of on the surface. And kind of we spreading grow a out. lot. <laughs> grow a lot, spread out. Yeah. Uh, there does seem to be a huge interest in the robotic missions off the planet. Um, the Curiosity rover on Twitter has 1.8 million followers. Uh, the Philelander has 375,000 followers. And Rosetta has almost 300,000 followers. It seems like there's definitely a renewed public interest in space missions. Absolutely. And I think that's great. Um 
people are interested in this stuff. They want to they want to see what's going on. And also, I think people take pride in the in the technical accomplishment of it. The fillet lander, especially. I mean, not to take away from Curiosity, landing something on Mars is very very hard. <laughs> the fillet lander was and and Rosetta in general. That was just a, a a glorious orbital path that took it through lots of exciting twists and turns. I mean, it went to. I, I forget all the sequences it did just to get out to that comet, and then to actually put a lander on it was just amazing. Um, and then, of course, Curiosity. I mean, people are very fascinated by Mars. Mars is just an interesting, interesting planet, and we we learn so much more about it. Curiosity has already discovered two things that screw with the Martian. My book. <laughs> <laughs> how how uh, how convenient of it. Yes. It, um, since it, so, it, it landed after my book after the book was written, and like one thing it found out was first off, there's a huge amount of water locked up in the soil of Mars. Something like for every cubic meter of Martian soil, there's about 35 liters of water, which is like plenty. So Mark, all, all this stuff Mark had to do to get water, well, probably he could have just baked it out of the soil. But uh, I could get away with it still. I could say like, well, he's in Acidelia Planitia, which is a desert, and the Curiosity rover, that's over by Mount Sharp, which is like thousands of kilometers away. Totally different area, I can claim, until somebody <laughs> proves me otherwise. And the other thing they found out was that there's a, a lot of, um, that the soil in Mars is like riddled with phosphines, which would make it impossible to grow anything in. But uh, then, you know, if I'd known that, then I would have said, okay, what what do you do to make it suitable? And then I would have had Mark do that. <laughs> so more research would have solved that problem. More, re- more research, yeah. Do you think the advent of social media and the fact that hundreds of thousands or millions of people can follow some of these missions in real time has increased the engagement level? Probably. I, I would say it's not just social media. I would say just the internet in general. The ability to... Um, Get the information when you want it is critical for these sorts of things because um, the information comes in slowly and methodically. It's not like there's some – I mean you watch the landing and that's exciting, right? You can watch that live on TV. But beyond that, it's the sort of thing you check up on once a month or so. And um, and so – uh, having having random access to the data is, is I, I think, what people like. They go like, oh, I wonder what Curiosity's up to. So as a space nerd who writes books uh, that shows the work, um, do you have any recommendations of other sci-fi books that would appeal to people who loved your book and want more? Well, uh, for, for starters, whenever asked uh, about sci-fi recommendations, I always have to recommend Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. Uh, it's, it's the best best book i've read in you know maybe 10 years or more uh it's not a a hard sci-fi book like the martian but it is science fiction and and it's it's very very good um if you want hard sci-fi the stuff that has like technical accuracy i'd recommend um pretty much any of larry niven's stuff like ring world and now it's it's all very uh it's all very kind of high concept like you know here's oh here's an artificial series of planets in orbit around each other, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's, it, he, he uses real science. Uh, but my, my favorite authors, the ones that inspired me, you know, the ones I grew up reading were um, Heinlein, Asimov, and Clark. Um, so if I had to pick one book out of, out of all of everything for sci-fi enthusiasts to read or people getting into sci-fi, I'd say I, Robot by Isaac Asimov. Andy, thank you so much for being here. The book is both fascinating and a really great read. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Andy Weir or his novel, The Martian, you can check out andyweirauthor.com, a link which you'll find in the show notes for this episode on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. 
And we'll be back in just a minute with another Martian-themed interview with journalist Elmo Keep, who dug into the Mars One space project to try and separate reality from buzz in this private bid to make it to the Red Planet. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me now is Elmo Keep, an Australian writer and journalist whose work has been published with Matter, The All, The Rumpus, The Monthly, The Saturday Paper, The Sydney Morning Herald, on ABC TV and elsewhere. She's also the digital director with the arts and culture magazine, The Lifted Brow. Welcome to the show, Elmo. Hello, thank you for having me. Okay, so I've been wanting to talk to someone about the Mars One project for a while, but most of the stuff out there was either extremely vague, extremely biased, or both. Um, and you recently published an article about Mars One for Matter, which uh, our listeners can find in the Medium Network, which was titled All Dressed Up for Mars and Nowhere to Go, which was absolutely fascinating. Before we go too far down the rabbit hole, um, I want to make sure all of our listeners are up to speed on what exactly Mars One is. Um, could you give us a little background on Mars One for the uninitiated? They are a very small number of people who are working to get a privately funded one-way mission to Mars to happen. Their idea is to bring costs down by sending people only one way and they're going to establish a colony there and that this is going to happen by 2025. So how are they going to get the money that they need to buy from private enterprise? So places like people like SpaceX and Paragon Space and Lockheed Martin and people who do have actual legitimate contracts with NASA, that's who Mars One proposes to buy the technology from, which costed around $6 billion saying landing people there will cost that much money. And they're going to get that money by producing a reality TV show that is going to run for 10 years. So from when the final crews are chosen, they're going to be training for 10 years on Earth in everything that you need to know to become an astronaut. And then they're going to be sent to Mars one way, and this broadcast will take place on Earth, and then the broadcast will take place throughout the mission and then forever after. So they base the figures on where that money could be raised by looking at the most recent cycle of the Olympic Games, which generates significant money, $8 billion, through broadcast rights, merchandising, advertising. So their idea is, is that they can create an entertainment property that is comparable to the Olympic Games and that from there they will have the funds to send these people. So if you look at that, there are a huge number of problems with how that would work. Can you give us an idea of the range of people you talked to as part of your research for this story? Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it was for background and, you know, you couldn't put 
15 different characters into a story. So a ton of it was, you know, people who do psychometric testing on putting teams together, like how do teams work well together? People who are working on high seas, which is an analogue on Earth for a long-term isolation chamber. People who work at Lockheed Martin, for example, people at NASA, people in the various Mars societies around the world. So there are a lot of hardcore scientists, geologists, a lot of people who work in NASA also a part of the Mars Society. It's a real passion project for people inside NASA. It's not like they're not trying to make this real. They are. And they have a very real uh, concrete roadmap for making it happen. So there was that side. Then there were the people who work in Mars One, who I was speaking with over a period of time. I was speaking with different people on the shortlist for a long time, sort of trying to figure out who, as a journalist, trying to figure out who I would build the story around. Uh, so there was a lot of people in the in the research in trying to get a really broad-based understanding of all of the different elements of, of a long-term space mission. You know, and then and then I was able to speak with, you know, someone like Chris Hadfield, who is a very famous astronaut and an incredible human being who's really generous with his time. And so, yeah, so all the way sort of top to bottom from people who are doing behind-the-scenes work and people who are really well-known for working in aerospace. And can you give us a little bit of an idea of some of the key figures involved? Who's at the helm of this project? So they're based in, in the Netherlands. Their CEO is a guy called Boss Landstorp. And his background is he was a PhD researcher and working on wind energy. And he had decided that he wanted to dedicate his energies and, and life, essentially, to getting people to Mars, to being the head of the company that makes that happen. So he's one person. There is someone else there called Arno Wilders, who also works at ESA. And he wouldn't speak with me, so I wasn't able to interview him, unfortunately, because he is working on a lot of the technical side of the of the mission so that was that was hugely disappointing to me that they would that they didn't want to he didn't want to be interviewed and then there is another guy called norbert Kraft, who's their chief medical officer who's actually gone through the people who applied and is interviewing them and in working on choosing the final selection of people so that's pretty much the core people behind the company. Okay, can you give us a little bit more detailed information on the timeline for the Mars One program? At what point are they expecting to have finalists versus finish training the finalists versus launch versus arrive at Mars? They, at the moment, have announced the absolute shortlist of, of people, which is down to 600 low 600, so 638, I believe it is. And that is the most recent announcement that they've made. So between when they are saying they're going to land on the planet, which is 2025, and now it would look like they would be really shortly within, you know, the next year at the very latest, choosing the final what they say is going to be 24 people who are going to be hardcore, you know, trained up to be astronauts, despite the fact that most of them don't have the background that's required to become an astronaut. So it's 10 years from that to landing, and that is incredibly ambitious. Do they have any idea how much this will actually cost? Their estimate is $6 billion is a, is a figure that has been going around. How exactly they can get it down to that is not really ever clearly explained. That just seems to be based on the idea, okay, so 
private companies are going to be creating this technology and therefore it's going to be cheaper and cheaper. And so by the time 10 years from now, the projection is that's how cheaply we could do it. It isn't based on any real hardcore analytics of costings. It's just a really uh, optimistic idea. And so the MIT paper that we linked to that I mentioned in the page, uh, in the piece, sorry, did very precise measurements on what, how many launches would be required, how long it would realistically take and how much it would cost. And just the launches of 15 Falcon Heavies is $4.5 billion. And that's just the launch that's required to get everything that they need there. The biggest concern in this that I came away with is that that's only in the best of all possible worlds, let's say that that is possible at that little amount of money to make this happen. That's only getting them there. That isn't then forever after servicing them and resupplying them. And where that money would come from is incredibly mysterious and vague. So I would be very worried about that if I was someone who was potentially going to be taking part in this mission. How am I going to be kept alive once I get there? Again, we're talking about a reality show here. Is there a partnership or a potential partnership with a broadcaster of some type? I'm presuming there would be some international interest here so that we'd be talking about multiple different broadcasters. That's right. So they have they have announced a partnership with a production company with Endemol who are interested in producing this show with them. But so far, all that they have confirmed and announced is that they have a partnership. They haven't said yes, we have a commission in place for a series, or yes, we have a commission in place for a pilot. It's just an agreement to work together theoretically on a show that would come out of this project. So there's no no network has bought the rights. It doesn't exist yet as a property that they could sell yet to broadcasters. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about some technical partners as well, because there's a lot of technology that we need in order to go into space, get to Mars, set up a colony on Mars. How much of this technology actually exists right now? Well, NASA is about to launch the Orion spacecraft. And when this story goes to air, we will know how that went. So as far as a rocket that is possibly capable of traveling that distance, that is what we have as of now. That's what exists right now. In terms of a craft that would carry people, that doesn't exist yet. In terms of what kinds of materials they would be able to use, work, live with, construct, be able to maintain once they get to the surface of Mars and deal with its radiation environment, that's completely unknown. And so that's why when you look at NASA's roadmap, it's tiny steps towards doing something as enormous as as building a settlement on that planet. Like the first thing is to successfully get far enough and land it with people in it. That is going to be the most historic moment in human science since the moon landing. So it isn't just a matter of getting the money and then this technology will magically exist and then we'll buy it from someone and then we'll just send our own people, which is Mars One's plan in a nutshell. It just is not that easy. And I think that it's a really very arrogant way of looking at these incredibly complex problems to sort of reduce them to that kind of, if only we had money, if only NASA had more money. NASA works at this and has been for decades and will continue to. So 
it isn't a matter of impatience. It's like these things are so unbelievably dangerous and so incredibly difficult. It's why there's reasons why it takes so long for these breakthroughs to be made. And the technology cap isn't the only hurdle between us and Mars. There are a lot of biological and medical problems um, involved here as well, just with being that long in space. Can you run us through some of the medical concerns? Well, that is that is a huge part of NASA's plan as well, to just to be able to even see how are people's bodies going to cope, what is going to happen to people physically and, more importantly, psychologically. Psychologically, well, they're, I shouldn't say more importantly, they're equally as, as important as each other, but so few people have been into deep space or out of, you know, even Earth orbit, as far as deep space goes, the moon is as far as people have gone, which is really, really far. <laughs> but this is a really small number of people to be able to um, build a medical literature around. So it's incredibly difficult to predict because the pool of people to choose from is so tiny. The observations are so limited because there's been so few subjects. So there's things like the bone density loss, the muscle mass loss, the difference in circadian rhythm when you're not being, you know, woken up and setting with the sun. There's isolation. There is the psychological, what could possibly go wrong is, is just, it's so frightening, which is why it's so poured over and so carefully calibrated in experiments by NASA, trying to figure out how people will be able to psychologically withstand the vast, vast distance is going to separate them from from their, their home and where they are. And how do you ensure that people remain harmoniously working together? How do you deal with people when they do, if they do, psychologically break down or just have incredible difficulties that we don't know yet? Like there's no way to know how that's going to affect a human mind because no one has ever been that far. So these are all the things that thousands of people are working on behind the scenes to try and minimize all the risk as possible, as far as possible, before any person would ever be sent on a mission. And of course, with Mars One, there's an additional psychological factor that we don't have when we're talking about NASA, which is these people aren't coming back. They're essentially signing up for a one-way ticket. That's right, which is not something that government agencies would ever be able to do in terms of ethics. They, could, they would never be able to send people out into deep space with no way to retrieve them or bring them back. So the thought of living your days out on Mars is probably not appealing to almost all of us. But there are the small number of people who would take enormous risks and are willing to do things that everyone else thinks is crazy and those people are the kinds of people who have taken us, you know, in those great leaps. But it just seems like something so impossible to comprehend from our earthbound perspective. You could agree in any number of ways, yes, I am prepared to do that. But the reality of it is not going to be anything like what people think it's going to be, which is what I came away from talking to David Wilson at NASA about when he was sort of explaining to me, look, in order to be able to do this, everything has to be incredibly simplified and you're going to be living a very 18th century kind of life. So all your tools have to be really simple and able to last for a long, 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 long time. 
And there's all kinds of other things where it's not going to be this crazy space age vision of the future. It's going to be really, 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 really difficult. And you're going to be living underground and you're never going to feel the sun on your face again. And it's just the the more that things stack up, even when in the future NASA has managed to get people to the surface of Mars, how long that they will be able to stay there and come back and then what's going to have to happen to their bodies in order for them to be able to come back to Earth, how they would be rehabilitated. Those are all things that no one knows the answers to. So there is a huge number of, of things that exist only in the realm of the theoretical at the moment. And working towards solving those problems are things that take, that take decades. It takes a long time to solve every single one of those enormous problems before safely people could go and come back. And another consideration, of course, is medical concerns. When we're talking about sending people into the International Space Station, there is an evacuation. There is the ability to get people back to Earth, maybe not quickly, but within a time frame, I think that people deem as acceptable. But it's a long way to Mars. It's it's several months trip, if I'm not mistaken. And then when you get there, you can't send the first aid kit over. It's... You're there who you're there with, and I'm assuming they would have to have medical training as well. Yes, that would be that would be part of their training. Um, you know, they would need to be able to perform, you know, like rudimentary dentistry. They would need to be able to repair broken bones. They would need to be able to, you know, suture wounds and do that kind of really basic surgery. But anything were to go more catastrophically wrong than that, you're facing horrible odds of of not coming out well. And again, those are things that space agencies work on contingencies. Like there has to be contingencies for every single conceivable thing that could go wrong. And once that is solved, once people know, okay, no matter what goes wrong, we have a way, we have a way to deal with that, then we can take the next step. So there's, if you were to look even beyond, if people, let's say everything goes well and they're there and they're on Mars and they're there forever. How are you going to provide the kind of care that's required for people once they become elderly? How would you be dealing with people who were becoming demented, say? There's just so many reasons why it's not a wise plan to just send people there with no way to retrieve them. And for me, that was the real ethical, the wall that I kept coming up against as a a writer just thinking, yeah, people can agree that they're happy to do it. They say, I fully eyes open go into this. But truly being able to comprehend that is different. The reality of that happening to you versus your imagination of how you think it's going to go is different. So that is why, yeah, contingencies have to be in place for every single thing that could possibly go wrong, which is, which is everything from being able to replace and repair any single piece of equipment that you have with you, no matter how tiny. So you're looking at resupply missions that over time would just become heavier and heavier and needing more and more things to keep the colony going. So the the costs become exponentially bigger as the time goes on, not cheaper. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things about it that that are that are serious issues. 
I do want to talk more about the ethics here, because I think that's a really interesting part of what's going on and what people are talking about. Um, in the last couple of months, there have been major high profile failures in the space industry. I'm thinking of the NASA and Terrace rocket exploding on launch um, and not long after a Virgin Galactic spacecraft crashed and killed one of the pilots. Um, we've had huge successes in space so far, but just getting into space is still really, really difficult, even for NASA, who's been doing it for years. Um, and NASA is a public organization that takes the deaths of its people very, very seriously. So my question is, will Mars One, as a private organization, take its diligence towards safety of its people as seriously as a public organization? Well, they, they very openly say, and this, you know, in our interview said the same thing, which was they are willing to accept a much higher degree of risk than NASA or ESA or the Japanese Space Agency or anyone in government would. And that's how they're going to keep the costs down. So they very are very open about that. They're willing to accept a higher degree of risk in order to get it to happen. So for me as a person who cares about another person who I got to know who is, you know, potentially going to be taking part in this mission were everything to go right and actually ever left the planet. The fact that the people who are taking that into, you know, taking someone else's lives into their hands and that they don't agree to as minimal risk as is humanly possible, which is, which is NASA's purview, NASA has to operate that way, I don't think is ethically okay. It didn't sit okay with me, especially because these are other people's lives that they are putting on the line, not their own lives. None of them are going and they don't want to go, but they're happy to take other people and send them on a really risky mission. And the more that time went on, the more that I looked into it, the, the more difficult it was for me to to sort of reconcile that and not look into it and say something about it in terms of how I felt. And, you know, if once it gets going, the revenues are not as expected and corners need to be cut, um, I wonder how much of that information will come down to the finalists, the people who are actually, you know, deciding to go and, and throw their lot in with Mars One. One hopes that if this actually does get to launch day, that those on the crew will be able to make a final and hopefully well-informed decision on whether they go or don't go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they do keep reiterating that. They're like, people can leave at any time. People are not, you know, they're not locked in by contract, so they're not prisoners. <laughs> they, they're not going to be sent against their will. They have to be very well across the risks and even with that knowledge still agree that, yes, this is what they want and, yes, they want to go. So that, in turn, you know, that, that is absolutely how they intend to to deal with their with their their candidates and with their astronauts, but I mean, there's other things like if you're looking at a privately funded mission where literally billions of dollars would have to come from companies and from private enterprise, what happens if one day one of those partners goes bust? Which happens? Companies, banks collapse. Where will that money come from? What will happen if some huge future conglomerate of a tech company gets broken up and doesn't exist anymore and they're like, sorry, we really can't afford to keep putting this billion dollars a year into our Mars project. You know, those are the reasons why government funding and accountability that goes along with it is the only way to get these kinds of enormous, enormous projects to become real. So there's a, there is just a 
bunch of stuff when you look into, aside from the fact that, you know, private companies have lost really, really tragically recently their crafts. There's more than that about the risks inherent in private funding. And it's just, it's, it's, it's inherently unstable as opposed to government funding. And even just talking about things like sponsors, if someone signs on to sponsor Mars One and gives them, I'm thinking, you know, a billion dollars a year, say, to help keep the mission going, uh, say they get to Mars, they form a colony, they're there. What happens if something ethical or some kind of strange thing happens? People protest and that sponsor gets kind of cold feet and backs out. Is That seems like a hugely massive problem um and i assume there's oh, no absolutely. contingencies for how we're going to support these people no not at all like their their financing plan is focused solely on raising the six billion dollars just to get it off the ground in the first place that's as far as they have gotten in terms of what they are publicly sharing about their plan there's other things like let's look at six billion dollars of profit generated from an entertainment property of any kind that's bigger than Titanic, Avatar, and the Avengers all put together. That's what you're looking at having to create if you're wanting to be generating $6 billion of, of revenue that is profit. It is not that easy. It is not easy to replicate the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games is hundreds of years of history and decades of years of broadcast. It's two weeks a year for four years, and it's basically about betting. You know, sports broadcasts are lucrative because people bet on sports. This is not something that can happen with a deep space mission, a lot of which is going to be, to be frank, really quite boring. <laughs> like, you know, like, you can look at the ISS right now at any time. You can see what they're doing. And when they go out on a spacewalk, it's like, wow, oh, my God, okay, they're doing a spacewalk. That is so exciting. But that doesn't happen that often. <laughs> a lot of the time, they're out there conducting experiments and maintaining the place, and it is not really riveting television. But if it were to be riveting television, it might be something like, okay, these people have turned on each other or one of them is having a major psychotic event or any number of the life or death things that could go wrong. I can't see that companies are going to be one associated with that. Advertisers are not going to want to be associated with that. And broadcasters ethically are going to have a huge amount of trouble broadcasting something that could conceivably very easily entail someone's death. So there's just so much that has not been really thought through about this plan, to my mind. Elmo, thank you so much for being here and sharing your thoughts. It's a fascinating article and um, beautifully illustrated with art by Josh Cochran and photographs by Daniel Bode. Those guys just did such amazing work and it was such a collaborative effort getting that piece and working with Mark Lotto and my editor there. And um, yeah, I, I'm really glad. Thank you so much for having me. You can find more about Elmo Keep and Andy Weir in the show notes for this episode on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the weekly podcast to get the show instantly delivered to your various smart devices as soon as it's available. An extra special thanks to everyone who has found us on Patreon or supported us via our donation page. Because of you and your gracious support, we are well on our way to keeping the show advertising free and available on community airwaves near you. And if you wish you could support the show but just don't have room in your budget, please do take a little time to rate and review the show on iTunes and share your love of the show with others who might love it too. 
That's it from us this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.